You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Lou Anders. He's the editor of Pyre SF. Thank you for joining me, Lou. My pleasure, as always. Lou, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the steampunk genre, which I think is being kind of expanded of late to include stuff that's maybe wasn't exactly thought of, of as steampunk before. And, and I guess one of the books that I'm talking about here is a new Pyre book called End of the Century by Chris Robertson. Tell us a little bit about the book. Well, that is a really interesting book. There are actually three stories, as you know, that mm-hmm. run parallel and come together in the end. Uh, the first story takes place during the time of the historical King Arthur, in which a knight named Galad, who we remember as Galahad, has been receiving mysterious visions of a beautiful white lady who needs help, and she entreats him to go entreat King Arthur to gather his knights and come on a quest. The third story takes place in contemporary terms and is has the trappings of a YA novel. It's about a young girl, punk rocker in the 90s, who has been having visions of the London Eye her entire life. And when they build it in 1999, she freaks out. She turns 18, she buys herself a ticket to London to find out why she's been having these these visions in her mind. And then in between this is a Victorian uh, classic consulting detective novel um, it's it's Sherlockian, only it's really not. The, the the character in question, Sanford Blake, is actually a... I mean, Sanford Blank is actually a Sexton Blake analog, not a Sherlock Holmes analog. But it's the classic Victorian murder mystery, Jack the Ripper, etc., etc. And then these three stories come together in a way, oddly, not dissimilar to Ian McDonald's Brazil, a novel that has everything and nothing in common with the end of the century. <laughs> I think one of the things that that really appeals to me about the steampunk and I guess what 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 I'm what we'll call Victorian science fiction, I like the idea that Queen Victoria seems to be sent, sitting at the center of a web of of a lot of science fiction, and she holds this kind of ominous power over the characters. She does. Um, I'm going to argue she's about to be she's she's getting some some competition from Queen Elizabeth. But, uh, you know, it's interesting because they, uh, both of those queens sh- have shown up in Doctor Who recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have um, some of the Elizabethan uh, f- fantasy fiction coming out recently from Elizabeth Bear and, is it Marie Brennan, Midnight Never Comes? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we, we're coming up with next season Mark Chadbourne's The Silver Skull, which is the first in a series about an Elizabethan James Bond. I, I think there's a, a real appeal to the to these kind of uh, science fiction novels, I guess, set in the past, and I think that's a really interesting uh, approach for for writers because it allows us to look at stuff that current technology a, as if it were science fiction, and I, I think that gives uh, one of the pleasures that gives readers is a really unique perspective on our world as well. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it, it, the Robertson is really, I think, secret history. 
mm-hmm. uh, to a large degree, and, and and maybe not even so secret. I mean, he did just extensive research on the on, on the Arthurian period, and had convinced me in our discussions that he had uncovered some er myths that were, you know, the 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 the, the missing links behind both Arthurian mythology and a lot of the other legendary British figures who are, you know, kings buried under hills, et cetera. And you read that and you start, you know, it, it does that wonderful trick that, that uh, things like the Illuminatus does where you, you believe about half of it, but then he'll, he'll throw in something that's so absurd it can't possibly be true. But you're wondering how much of it is true and how much of it isn't true. I like this uh, your your comment there on secret histories because I think that really gets to uh, the heart, uh, uh, in a way, of appeal of this of the all of these different kind of things we're talking about Victorian Elizabethan and steampunk, because they really do offer essentially secret histories of the world, and I think that's in a way uh, uh, the appeal of all fiction. All fiction is secret histories, isn't it? Do you think it allows us to imagine that the world we live in is more colorful than it is? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> more colorful than it is, <laughs> which is which is hard to believe sometimes since we we live in a pretty wild world these days. We exactly. Um, just in the last week, I've watched on YouTube uh, guys putting on flying squirrel suits and leaping off mountains to cliff dive. Um, that there's a Japanese professor who's come out with a real life Iron Man suit that increases human strength by five times. And there's a really scary video about another uh, uh, robot that's been made to learn like a baby. And the goal is to produce something within, within two years of between human and chimp intelligence level. Uh, of about, of, I think I said about a two-year-old level, but uh, comparable to like, the above a chimp and below a human. So just, you know, in, in just, just surfing on the net in the last few days, I freaked myself out about the world we're currently living in. Um, maybe the world was always this strange and always has been. Well, uh, it's interesting that you bring up this the two year old the two year old because when I attended the the Singularity Summit a couple years ago, the guy from IBM was talking about that that was the real challenge for facing artificial intelligence, not creating an artificial Einstein which could do the chess reasoning, which was a lot easier than to do the basic stuff that a two year old does. I remember that interview, and you know, uh, another one of my one of my favorite stories is uh, many years ago the Discovery Channel had a five-part series on robotics with, hosted by Jillian Anderson. And she, they came on and talked about how a robot that walked was decades away and they showed the best American thing that they'd come up with yet, which was a, uh, a robot that had legs like a turkey and it was tethered to a pole and it ran around in circles around this tether by just falling forward and hopping fast enough that it didn't crash. Boy, that's no. great. <laughs> and, and they said, that's, that's the best we got. <laughs> we won't have anything that walks for 10 years or more. And two weeks later, the Japanese debuted Asimo. And he's not just walking. He's taking stairs. He's bending over. He's <laughs> doing a little tap dance and turning sideways. And, you know, I think the thing dribbles a basketball now. And uh, so anytime someone says, we're, we're decades away from this, I, I start looking for the news of it next week. Well, I think one of the appeals of uh, of all these steampunk novels and, and the Victorian and Elizabethan um, uh, science fiction as well is uh, there's a big tie-in with it. There's a lot of fashion now that's come out, and I think this is the first time that science fiction has ever um, ha- had an analogous uh, impact on fashion. It, it's 
you know, it's, it's steampunk has completely left the pages of the books and, and fled into fashion, gaming, uh, film. It'll be interesting to see now that we've got a rash of steampunk books coming out, will the interest feed back in from, you know, will the people who are dressed as steampunk seek out the literature? Well, I think uh, one of the things that's really appealing about the steampunk idea is that uh, you can actually create some of this technology. I mean, the the the, the technology that science fiction to the characters in steampunk novels is stuff that people on the streets can create, and I think that that lends a lot of appeal, and I think that will bring back a lot of people to to reading the fiction because there's a real joy in. Um, Reading fiction where the adventure of the characters is it, it involves things that you yourself could just do in your garage if you just got busy. I can see that. I can see that. I think there's also um, an aspect that I hadn't considered until recently, which is the idea of getting the past right this time. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, getting the past right finally. You know, I, I think uh, particularly science fiction people have a lot of frustrations that we're not further along than we are. You know, that we abandoned the moon and we haven't... I, I, I hate the phrase, where's my front flying car, because I think we actually live in a world far more fantastical than one with flying cars in it. But, you know, I, I think you go back and you reimagine a, a, a Victoriana where they, where, they, where they embrace the computer technology and they project where that would put us. Um, in fact, that's a wonderful segue. We've got a, a novel that's still many moons away. It's still being written. But George Mann, who wrote the Infinity Bridge that Tor is about to publish and that Snowbook Books published in Britain, and mm-hmm. it's a fantastic novel, is writing a steampunk superhero novel for us set in the 1920s. Wow, that sounds really cool. <laughs> what it's else? called Ghosts of Manhattan, and it is set in a New York that is a projection forward from a steampunk Victorian era. Now, that's really interesting. So there are steampunk taxicabs and... Uh, the ghost is a classic, you know, shadow slash spirit, um, crime finding avenger, who uses a variety of of clockwork gadgets, in a in a world with steam powered taxicabs. Wow, now that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, uh, George Mann is a is doing some really interesting work with with these with these novels of his. Could you talk a, a, about? Um, the importance of these kind of uh, as building on the past, on the recent past. I mean, steampunk is is like climbing on its own shoulders at a pretty remarkable rate. Absolutely. I mean, it it, it was when it debuted. It was what just three or four books. I mean, the Difference Engine, some of the James Blaylock stuff, uh, Paul DeFilippo's steampunk trilogy. I mean, you know, when it came out. You could have read the steampunk canon in a few months. You could have read the steampunk canon in a few days. I could have read the <laughs> steampunk canon in a few months. <laughs> and and suddenly it's exploding back. You know, um, I don't know if you've seen, it, it hasn't come out yet, but Tim Aker's Heart of Veridon, which Solaris will publish later this year, mm-hmm. uh, is one of their last offerings. It's um fantastic book set on a steampunk world. Mm-hmm. And it's it's steampunk fantasy, where uh, you have um, you know people with cogs inside their bodies and these things called artificer beetles or maker beetles. Mm-hmm. Sounds little like... clockwork insects that pour over you and rebuild your body. It's just some marvelous, marvelous 
set pieces in it. I when I, I read it, I I completely saw it as an Alex Proyas film. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's a, another aspect of, of steampunk that it really does um, harken back to to uh, some movies and. and when you talk about our Alex Proyas, I'm thinking of, of a Dark City. Really has that kind of a steampunk Very feel, and, and also I think a lot of us uh, who cut our teeth on science fiction so many years ago still really love and cherish and and uh, fondly remember reading H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. I mean that stuff. Uh, Wood and brass and plush red upholstery in your spaceship. And I, I I love that. I'm I'm one of those who we we mentioned Doctor Who before. I'm one of those that laments the fact that they that they only used the auxiliary TARDIS control room once or twice before that got ruined. If you remember what I'm talking about, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, and, and Doctor Who I think also has has a you know cast a huge um, uh, chat over it's, it's steampunk. I'm thinking, uh, and I'm trying to remember the title it was uh i believe it was uh, a tom baker episode with the the giant rat under the sewers mm-hmm. that was um oh, uh, not the mask of Andragora, the um the talons of wing Chiang. yeah ta- talons yeah. of wing chang I, i'm always trying to decide whether it, it's 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 when you know once again they cast a white guy as the asian villain and i can't <laughs> decide whether it's racist in the part of the doctor who episode or a nod to the era when that was done. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm going to give the, the Doctor Who the guys... The benefit of the doubt. The that, was a, that was a pastiche of an earlier form. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and um, also, the other a movie I fondly remember is uh, the um, First Men in the Moon. And who, oh, yeah. Was that a George Powell movie? Yep, yep. With, uh, with the... With the uh, Oh, the the cylinder covered. What was it uh, covered with? Uh, I, can't, I can't remember the name. And it, was it shows up n- again in, in Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oh, that's right. That's right. Um, yes. Yeah, it's the same substance. It, it's not it's not phlogiston, but it has a, a weird name like that. Yeah, I think it's somebody's name. It's one of the characters' names. Cadminium or no? that's it. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, the professor. Now, um, tell us a little bit about uh, some of the offerings that you guys have coming up. Well, I mentioned the Chadbourne, which mm-hmm. is Elizabethan James Bond. Uh, the war with Spain is actually a Cold War with Ferry. Ah. Um, we have uh, just come out with James Ng's Blood of Ambrose. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that one yet. It's, it's right. I've, I, I moved it back into the house. It got moved out of the house when uh, we had visitors. I had to clear out the room because I had... Uh, four foot stacks of books on a table, which threatened to fall on our guest. <laughs> well, uh, move it, move it back to center because it, it's 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 secondary world fantasy. But there are um, there are there are technologies in it which are somewhat uh, steampunk ish. As as are there are there are also he, he operates in a magical system where where medieval alchemical rules of magic hold sway. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's not our cosmology; it's not our laws of nature. And I don't want to spoil it, but there's a big steampunky contraption in it that I would love to see animated <laughs> about halfway through the novel. Um, we, we, you know, it's it's funny. We we you always ask me about things I'm reading, and I always can't talk about them because I haven't acquired them yet. And once upon a time, you asked me about the Mark Chadbourne. We're 
coming out with his Age of Misrule series this month. Yeah, yeah, I got the first two uh, arcs. I mean, they're beautiful covers, too. John Picasso, I think he really, really outdid himself on those. Yeah, yeah, they really capture the, the feel of the books, which I'm so glad are coming out in America because I, I think they're a big deal, and I think somebody better get those on the screen pronto. I, I agree. I absolutely agree. And, you know, it, it's interesting because we, when we, John and I were discussing the cover, we looked at the movie poster for Pan's Labyrinth a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't think that what we did really resembles that, but you maybe can see its influence. Um, but you know what, what John wanted and what Mark thinks he's achieved the minute we showed him the covers is that sense of something, some you know, imminent with an eye, uh, this giant godlike figures imposing themselves on the natural order. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think there's a little bit of Jack Kirby in the cover too. Yeah, yeah, boy, yeah, that kind of. Uh... Uh, almost childlike, but still fright the the way nightmares frighten us when we're children. Now, um, also, I, I wanted to to ask you uh, about um, one of the things I really like that, about what you're doing is you, you've got a lot of trade paperbacks coming out, and I think that that going forward, this seems to be you know one more and more a, a dominant format in in, a, in our publishing world. Absolutely. And that's not, you know, that a lot of that is just because it's hard to get the change right now to take a hard cover. Mm-hmm. And I don't. That, the reason for that, not to blame the change, is, is that people don't want to part with $25, $26 for a hardcover book. Mm. Um, I do. <laughs> I do, too. <laughs> I would much rather have hardcovers. Um, I know everyone's not the sick collector that I am. I've got my Brodart jacket protectors going on them as soon as I get them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, but yeah, we're going to do a lot more trade paperbacks. We're going to do a lot more books. I think we'll end up having published 28 books in, in this year. Now, our year runs from March to March. Mm-hmm. But we'll have done about 28 books, and we're probably up in that in 2010. You know, I think it's really interesting that uh, there are so many um, that science fiction imprints seem to be you know, doing really well. There's a new one out of HarperCollins called Angry Robot. Um, you you have Pyre that's you know just really putting out some outstanding stuff. It's interesting that as the entire publishing industry seems to be collectively uh, uh, preparing to commit Harry Curie, science fiction is going strong and going stronger. I think that is the silver lining on the dark cloud of this recession. Um, you know we have seen our sales on an upward trajectory for the last eight months or more. Wow, and, that's uh, great. <laughs> it's. Um, you know, and it's it's it's. I mean, we're we're selling Joe Abercrombie, Tom Lloyd, Matthew Sturgis, Justina Robson. We just you know just selling those just hand over foot, just flying out the door. Um, it it. I I think that we might finally be seeing an end to the to the stigma attached to our genre by the rest of publishing, because I'm hearing you know I'm hearing from. Uh, publishers, I'm hearing from bookstores, I'm hearing from chain buyers, that the only thing that's working right now, other than books about our new president, are <laughs> science fiction, fantasy, and mystery. Well, so, books about our new president uh, 10 years ago would have been classified with yes, science yes, fiction. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, so, you know, I mean, nothing nothing buys respect like money. Mm-hmm. So if the only thing that, that the chains are able to sell right now is genre fiction, then the publishers are, you know, I think we might see a lot more publishers re-gear themselves toward, toward fiction people actually want to read. Yeah, what a surprise. 
I've been talking with Lou Anders. He's the editor of Pyre Science Fiction. Thank you for joining me, Lou. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.